Did you know that between 2017 and 18, more than 7,000 people in the UK were considered at risk of becoming violently radicalized and were thus referred to the UK's Prevent programme? More than half of them were aged just 20 or younger and almost all of them were men. And groups like ISIS have used more than 300 different platforms to disseminate online content in the past few years. This is Tech Against Terrorism. I'm Adam Hadley. And I'm Laurent Bordeaux. Since 2016, Tech Against Terrorism has collected more than 45,000 URLs that have led to numerous websites hosting terrorist material. Terrorist groups, particularly ISIS, predominantly use smaller platforms to spread their message and have been experimenting with new technologies to further their objectives. Of course, terrorism comes in many forms. Just last month, a right-wing extremist in El Paso killed 22 people and injured 24 others. This particular attack is being investigated as an act of domestic terrorism. The perpetrator posted a manifesto on the online message board 8chan in which he proclaimed his support for the Christchurch shooter who killed 51 people in March. Although the owner of 8chan, Jim Watkins, claims the site alerted the police the moment the message went up, it was there for about 25 minutes before the attack. But in those 25 minutes, how many people were able to read it? We know from the Christchurch attack that although the majority of smaller tech platforms hosting the gunman's attack video and manifesto quickly removed those from their platforms, people still got hold of it. Using a variety of tools such as web archiving, some users ensured that the video and manifesto remained online despite the best efforts of tech companies. Facebook had to block more than one and a half million attempts to re-upload the video within the first 24 hours. The important thing to stress about these one and a half million attempts to re-upload the video is that these were from normal members of the public. But of course, it's not just right-wing extremists who are exploiting the internet. In April this year, the ISIS-linked propaganda disseminator group Nashir News Agency promoted its new page on a relatively new platform called Connecty. Within 13 hours, the page had been verified with a blue tick. But a few hours later, it had been removed and has not reappeared since. And that wasn't the first case of ISIS experimenting with relatively small and lesser-known platforms. According to BBC monitoring jihadism specialist Abdirahim Said, ISIS recently tested a social media platform called GoLike. And if you look at past attempts, a pattern of using these small to medium-sized platforms emerges. Just a handful of examples include Bars, Viber, Kick, Ask FM, and Discord. At Tech Against Terrorism, we focus on the whole range of use cases of the internet by terrorists and violent extremists. We're really keen to stress that this issue goes way beyond content and propaganda. Terrorists also exploit technologies such as cryptocurrencies, fintech, VPNs and open source software. Fundamentally, what we try to do at Tech Against Terrorism is focus on what terrorists want to achieve and analyse their objectives and how the internet and the media ecosystem overall can be used and brought to bear to achieve those objectives. This means that we're looking at a situation in which terrorists exploit an entire ecosystem. Of course, that focuses on the internet, but also mainstream media and political discourse. At Tech Against Terrorism, we focus on a holistic systems-based approach, and we recommend that tech companies, in responding to this, focus on human rights and fundamental freedoms, such as the freedom of expression. So just how widespread is terrorist use and exploitation of the internet, and how exactly do terrorists use it? Let's speak now to Matthew Feldman, who is the director of the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. Hi, Matthew. How's it going? 
Hi there, Adam. Yeah, very well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, first of all, it'd be great to hear more about the Centre for Analysis of the Radical Right. What do you do there? Well, we're still pretty new, uh, only established about 18 months ago and affiliating uh, scholars and practitioners really from around the world to look at this transnational problem. And I think our mission, in addition to analysis, is to really try to present some of those insights uh, that we nerds sort of slave away at um, for the general public. And so one of our uh, key outputs is to put put out a, a, an inside blog of about a thousand words each day on a, a different aspect of radical right ideology uh, around the world. We also uh, provide, I think, unrivaled resources on radical right extremism in terms of uh, bibliographical materials, and uh, we're in the process of developing some uh, counter-narrative interventions as well. So um, it, it's an exciting and busy time, uh, but we're still yet short of, of two years. And you're doing some really important work. I should say we'll we'll tweet out links to all of this uh, when when the podcast goes live, so some of our listeners can can easily find some of that content. Many thanks. So Matthew, we hear about lots of different terms to describe uh, far right, the alt right, white supremacy, the radical right, right wing extremism. Can you share clarification of this? What what do these terms mean to you? Well, I'd start out by suggesting that there's a couple of umbrella terms, radical right or far right, uh, sometimes right wing extremism, are meant to include all aspects of of the far or radical right, uh, ranging from groups that might be in parliament and have radical right populist policies, right the way through to neo-Nazis and other revolutionary right figures. Now, within that umbrella, most scholars are pretty happy to say that there are different manifestations. For example, a group like the Defense Leagues are very different from a group like Adam Waffen. Um, Within that umbrella, uh, a number of useful terms to describe recent events, like the alt-right in the United States, have become very popular. And I think that there has been some sort of conceptual slippage to try to call groups like the alt-right an umbrella for all forms, or as I prefer to call them, faces of the radical right. And for me, we use the term radical right because I do think that most of these on the further fringes of the right wing spectrum are radical towards the mainstream. So that I don't think that far right almost suggests that they're part of the mainstream, and I don't think that that's happened yet. So our group really uses the term radical right to discuss its relationship to the mainstream, but also to use it as an umbrella term where underneath there might be alt-right or fascist or neo-Nazi specific permutations of this radical right ideology. So on that, can can you help explain um, a number of key characteristics ideologically of some of these groups? Yeah, I mean, I tend to think, first of all, that the radical right is, in fact, a, a transnational or global phenomenon so that we can see elements in places as far afield as Brazil or, for example, India. That's why when we talk about things like white supremacism, that certainly relates to radical right ideology in, let's say, parts of Europe or North America. But really, I think the more generic concept we're talking about is an ethnic or or religious cultural supremacism. You know, my group, uh, uh, my doctrine is better than yours. And I think that that supremacism is something that we see manifested in different forms of nationalism, certainly historically before 1945 in Europe, that was the case, Uh, but also elements uh, in some cases of populism, of pitting 
the real people against the elites or against uh, an uncaring or unresponsive state. Um, in some of the more extreme forms, there is an over-embrace of revolutionary ideology or tactics. So in some cases, um, we see that there are uh, incompatibilities between some groups. Uh, for example, anti-Semitism has long been a key trend by radical right ideologues in Europe, but to some degree, that is being replaced by what many of us see as the lowest common denominator amongst radical right ideology around the world, which is anti-Muslim prejudice. So focusing a bit on the UK in particular for now, how, how would you describe the far right here? Over the last decade, perhaps never so fractured. And if we go back even 10 years, we remember there was one radical right, some people might prefer to say neo-fascist party led by Nick Griffin. It had thousands of members. You'll, you'll, you'll also remember that they had elected two members of European parliaments in the north of England. And although there were small splinter groups or some begrudging wannabe Führers who were turfed out of that party, there really was kind of one party and a number of other splinters, that has, splinter groups. That has changed dramatically since 2009, where we see really no one large party being able to hoover up all of the support on the radical right. And that's led to a real fragmentation between different faces of the far right. So there has been something of a resurgence of neo-Nazi activism, and in some cases terrorism at the really extreme end. But we've also seen a kind of repackaging of some more traditional political party forms like UKIP to try to attract some of the one-time BNP support. And in terms of the internet and the media, how do far-right, alt-right groups get their message out there? And what are, what are the objectives of their use of the internet? I think that's a, an absolutely central question to what we do. Not least the far right, if we wish to call them that, were early adopters of this technology. You know, going back to the early 1990s, Stormfront was up and running, which now has regularly more than 100,000 people registering at the site. So they were an early adopter of the technology, I think for three reasons. If we go back to that period of the late 80s and early 1990s, um, where they were getting their message out were usually some of these pretty dodgy uh, magazines that had to be sent kind of incognito around the world. And the internet changed that. It provided a potential global community, especially in terms of, you know, quote unquote, Aryans around the world who felt uh, a, a certain kinship based on blood or whatever myth they were coming out for. It also allowed for them to have the anonymity that they really uh, cultivated in the 1980s so that they weren't outed at their places of work, let's say, or amongst their friendship or uh, family circles. But also, I think the internet has given a degree of permanency, not necessarily permanency of US URL links and the like, but that materials, once they go up online, can be increasingly and almost impossible to take down. So those three things, I think, really transformed uh, the message or the way in which the message was delivered by the radical right, and that's potential anonymity, global reach, and a permanency of, uh, of content. So then part of, part of your argument seems to be that modern technology and the internet has enabled um, a form of community that perhaps would otherwise have been very difficult to, to, to build and, and coalesce. How do you see the changing in the future? 
Well, I think that that's absolutely right. You know, I think it does provide that sense of digital community that was at least historically lacking between people who saw an ethnic or racial bond around the world. You know, in, in, certainly in terms of European and North American radical right, they are oftentimes cultivating this idea that whites are only 9% of the global population they're under threat, they're the victims of conspiracy, and that's something that they have to cultivate to fight against. It seems to me that that is pushing towards a kind of new master narrative that, in my view, I don't believe that we've seen on the radical right since between the wars. And if we go back, of course, after World War I, the master narrative from Hungary to Britain to you know many countries in Europe and beyond was that the nation is in decline, it's under threat from certain elements that we associate with modernity, and it must be redirected and restrained. And that's something that many conservatives at the sort of further ends of the right-wing spectrum could get on board without having a conspiratorial mindset. Of course, the radical right and its most uh, infamous permutation at the time, fascism, uh, ascribed these cons uh, in conspiratorial terms to Jews undermining the nation. And one of my concerns about the direction of travel we're seeing certainly is the greater militancy and use of violent language online that I've noted in the last several years. But also I think it's helping to put forward a new master theory, which is that white people are being replaced in their quote-unquote homelands. And as a result of that, conservatives might just talk about, or again, people the further reaches of the mainstream right-wing spectrum, might talk about their concerns about demographic change, not imputing necessarily conspiracy. But of course, for those people who are worried about the quote-unquote great replacement, that absolutely veers into conspiratorial territory. And that's why I think the direction of travel seems to be another master narrative that links these further reaches of the right against what is considered by many a demographic threat. And in, in recommending responses to the tech sector and to policymakers, how do we untangle this distinction between political speech and um, behaviour that would lead to violence? Yeah, I mean, that is the $20 million question, isn't it? And of course, we, you know, the first platitudinous thing I'd perhaps say is that where we are in Europe is different than, let's say, the United States with relatively unre unrestricted free speech rules. So that there is a context there that even if global social media platforms have to have one policy or one size fits all, how that actually plays out in different countries in their understanding of political speech, hate speech, free speech or incitement is to me a, a, you know, a really live issue. And I don't think people, including like me, who are really concerned about the, the rise of radical right extremism should try to ban offensive speech, things that I think are, are appalling and, and completely inappropriate might still be protected speech. And I think that we have to, all sides, clear on what constitutes hate speech and what constitutes incitement to violence, because it seems to me that those need to be the elements that we really need to tackle first and foremost. And we hear a lot about how tech companies need to do more. In your view, what do governments need to do to improve the response to this emerging threat? Well, again, another great question. I, I, if I could kind of contrast it, because uh, I've been working on, on kind of right-wing terrorism for 15 or so years, and I was profoundly disappointed or depressed after um, uh, the appalling attacks in uh, Norway in 2011 by Anders Bering Breivik, who, as you'll know, murdered 77 people, most of them children, 
killed at close range. And the question afterwards, totally understandable in a Norwegian context, is how our society can produce monsters like this. Now, again, I don't think anybody would begrudge the Norwegians for asking that very pertinent question, but it's clearly also not a question that has a lot of applicability in say, the United States or Britain or Germany. Uh, that's a specifically Norwegian question. And it seems to me that we've seen more move, uh, movement in the last five or six months than over the last 15 or 16 years, precisely because the New Zealand government in the wake of the horrific shooting and murder of more than 50 people in Christchurch, New Zealand, took the exact opposite approach, not how has our society potentially produced people like this, because we know every society at least can, but how do we combat through governmental initiatives the transnational ideology of radical right extremism, including the genocidal and eliminationist view of the Great Replacement. And I think that they've done that through partnering with a number of other uh, countries by really making sure that the issue is raised consistently and robustly in international fora, like the uh, United Nations General Assembly, and I really think that everything that New Zealand has done comes from a position of saying, frankly, look, we're a pretty small country of only several million people. But boy, what we need to do is bring on as many different partners as possible to tackle this at the international, uh, including with NGOs, international level. And that seems to me, while I understand Norway's position in 2011, that seems to me something that we can all get behind, whether NGOs, uh, SMEs, or indeed governments, to put our shoulder to the wheel to try to address this problem. And where internet platforms are concerned, how exactly is the radical right using the internet? Um, certainly different ways, I, I think. Uh, obviously, uh, in terms of messaging, the idea is to recruit, or in their term, kind of red pill new followers, and that can be done through uh, the use of memes, the attempts at irony to say, I don't really mean it, which gives a sort of patina of uh, deniability for some of the more outrageous claims, but also remember the trafficking of texts and other materials has never been at a higher level than today. And that ex extends from, let us say, historical works on fascism like Mein Kampf right the way through to terrorist manuals. So I think that the internet provides a one-stop shop for potential radicalization, but also potentially going down the terrorist cycle. And the, uh, by which I mean target surveillance, acquisition, and deployment. And I think those are the kinds of things that really need to be looked at in a pressing way. And that's been, in a sense, highlighted uh, by the alleged Christchurch shooter Branton Tarrant live streaming on Facebook uh, back in March, his, his horrific shooting at two mosques. And I think that that's placed in stark relief the way that the internet is a tool that can be exploited and I think that it's up to all of us to at least be thinking out of the box about how we can try to turn some of that exploitation back upon itself through counter-narratives, through myth-busting, and through different forms of de-radicalization. In your opinion, what, what should the tech sector do to help tackle this problem? Well, I speak as an outsider, first of all, um, and maybe even a little bit of a Luddite, so keep, take this with a pinch of salt. But it seems like there is more of an openness from uh, governmental agencies and indeed transnational organizations like the UN to listen to tech companies and their specific solutions. And we know that some of those solutions have been debated, whether it's the redirect method of moving people away from content, whether it's censoring certain types of speech or whether it's simply flagging it up in the way that, that YouTube might in terms of demonetizing particular types of content. And it seems to me that the, the, the governments around the world, let alone any transnational organizations, 
make the best uh, um, decisions when they're informed by tech companies, by other specialists, let's say, who, who, who might be able to tell them. Um, for example, DOTR doesn't spell out anything in and of itself offensive, but once you unpack it and say it's day of the rope and it refers to the Turner Diaries, that this is a very, very uh, uh, sociopathic, even genocidal form of words and phrasing, then we see that perhaps uh, uh, imputing that to ethnic and religious minorities or people in mixed relationships, which were the original targets of the Turner Diaries and the so-called Day of, Day of the Rope, uh, th that that is completely uh, insightful behavior. And that's just one example of where I think different types of specialism can help to inform decisions and lead us to best practice. And in terms of a legal normative response, how should tech companies respond? The reason I ask that is because at Tech Against Terrorism, we, we're clearly keen that technology companies respond according to the rule of law. And that's really difficult, uh, even with regards to violent Islamist extremist use of the Internet. Um, but far right seems somewhat harder in that regard. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And again, I wouldn't want to talk over your expertise, but maybe just one observation, and I, I, I restrict my comments to, in this case, Europe and North America, whereby um, the material that, a, let's say, jihadi Islamist might look at is already prescribed. It is already difficult to get, so someone is further down that pathway of radicalization and even just looking for it. And it seems to me that part of the problem with the radical right is that it's abuts the mainstream in many European and North American cultures. And that then makes it difficult to say uh, what used to be called the cordon sanitaire, separating a radical right extremist from the mainstream. As that becomes, uh, you know, basically as small as a cigarette paper, it becomes very difficult to say where uh, the fringe elements of the mainstream stop uh, and the radical right starts. And that makes putting down that line where you are engaging in forms of extremism or incitement and hate speech immensely difficult. And you're also talking about a demographic change whereby as much as I've always been uh, very hostile to profiling, you were historically looking at a, a demographic group in, in, in Europe or North America that might constitute three to 5% of the population. If you're talking about profiling, let's say, white men aged 15 to 50, you're going to find that that's about 40% of each country. So I think that that makes it a much difficult, a much more difficult uh, a conundrum to crack about where you draw the line. And it seems to me that that's one of the real issues, is that there is a political support for some of the ideas pushed forward by the radical right that is far, far larger than we ever saw for jihadi Islamism in Europe and North America. And in terms of platforms that are used by the radical right, what's your assessment of the kind of continuum there? Because you could argue on the, on the one side, you've got really kind of vitriolic, uh, unpleasant comments on the Daily Mail online, for example. Uh, oh, you've got maybe Gab in the middle, and then maybe in an extreme, you've got HM. Yeah, I completely agree with that assessment as well, that, you know, the comments under the line to some degree could be better moderated, but those are, whether we like it or not, mainstream publications. We've also seen, of course, that radical right extremists have tried to use the largest social media platforms, for example, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and as the more extreme uh, individuals or ideologies get kicked off them, they move to smaller platforms, whether those platforms are Gab, 
or Telegram or Discord or indeed their transnational ones like VK that clearly leaves a smaller footprint for those people in terms of disseminating those ideas. So I think moving them off the bigger platforms to the smaller ones is a start, but exactly as you say, that doesn't just solve the problem. And what we've seen on things like 8chan, which have uh, degrees of additional anonymity put in, is that uh, you know a lot of the uh, radical right terroristic attacks are in fact putting manifestos or, or broadcasting intent on places like 8chan. And there seems to be, from the webmaster and administrators, there very little appetite to do anything about it. And that brings us back to the central question. If the tech companies, if these big web platforms aren't doing something about it themselves, what then happens? Is it for a single state government to do something about it? Is it something at concerted international level to do something about it? Or is it something that needs to be done by concerned citizens and third sector groups? My answer would be, of course, all three, but that I think we need to work together to pool our strengths and our abilities to really tackle what is a very naughty problem. Matthew, thank you very much for your time today. And we've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on the way the radical right is using the Internet. Well, Adam, it's, a, it's an honor to be with you. And please, you and your team, keep up the fantastic work at Tech Against Terrorism. We're delighted to be working with you at CAR, and we look forward to a, a very long and fruitful, fruitful relationship on tackling these really difficult problems. Thank you. Joining us now is Audrey Alexander, researcher and instructor at West Point Combating Terrorism Centre. Hi, Audrey. Really pleased to have you on the podcast Hi there, Adam. Thanks for having me. So uh, as you interested, I'm a researcher and instructor at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. So in the podcast today, the views expressed are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. Military Academy, the Department of the Army, or the Department of Defense. My research focuses mostly on terrorist exploitation of technology and looks at everything ranging from uh, the problem itself and how terrorists use tools to responses to these challenges. So I'm excited to speak about that today. Great. Well, we're excited to have you on the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. So maybe to start off, um, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on how the far right, how the alt-right, how white nationalists use the Internet and how this has changed over the past couple of years. So speaking speaking about um, the far right, and also uh, since we are going to move into talking about jihadist movements as well, I think sort of tracing back the legacy on these organizations and, and looking at how they've evolved over time. So regardless of all ideologies, technologies can improve the capabilities of terrorists and violent extremist groups by enhancing the functions that they pursue, such as uh, content production, dissemination, information gathering, fundraising, recruitment, tactical planning. In the U.S. specifically, the far right has had an especially long legacy of using and experimenting with information and communications technology. And this is sort of spread out, and we we see other groups learning from each other as well. And how does this differ from Islamist extremists' use of the Internet? I don't think actually that they are, are so different in terms of the mediums that they use, but they are different in terms of sort of rhetorical uh, messages. So what's fascinating about this is that they're using a lot of uh, similar tools or overlapping tools because they're using everything from file sharing sites, uh, financial tools uh, like fundraising platforms, web archives, secure browsers, mobile security applications, uh, VPNs. But they're also using sometimes physical digital media, um, whether it's thumb drives, hard drives, smartphones. 
So while their messages may differ and and precisely how they make appeals to their respective audiences, uh, the tools and the networks they comprise kind of mirror each other uh, in some circumstances. That mirroring is particularly interesting. And um, in the same way, I wonder... Um, how could we describe the change in the terrorist use of the internet over time? We know that uh, a number of big technology platforms have been working very hard to eliminate terrorist use of their platforms. Has that been effective? Uh, and if so, where has that activity moved? So tracing back and sort of looking at how we as as complete society have looked at this problem, especially in the West, I think that one of the, the challenges is actually realizing that the problems we see today are not fundamentally new. So contemporary assessments of terrorist use of technology are not unlike observations analysts have articulated um, for more than a decade. So what I mean by that is these these players are resilient. Um, they fight to be heard and are sort of willing to do what it takes to, to achieve that objective. So one of the challenges is, is they're just so uh, willing to come back when we try to push them down. And we see this across different platforms. So as we try to restrict them in certain places, they are um, adaptive and willing to look for alternative mechanisms to communicate with each other and their respective audiences. So as we've seen um, major technology providers put more pressure on on these demographics, especially from everyone from pro-IS accounts to the far right, we, we don't necessarily see that it completely deters them or prevents them from speaking out online, but rather uh, allows them to, or sort of makes it necessary for them to move to other platforms, uh, some of which are more difficult to monitor. So from what you said, it sounds like terrorists use technology in a number of ways, from the tactical to the operational to the strategic. I wonder whether you could go into a bit more detail um, about what specific types of platforms are used for each of these purposes. To sort of narrow the focus and get into sort of the more tactical understanding of it, terrorists and violent extremists, um, folks are not uniform in their use of information communications technologies. And I think that this is something we can learn through how we use tools ourselves. You know, whether we use email with our colleagues or we text our friends and family, thinking about how this maps onto a group that um, is trying to be more covert with their communications. So, for example, um, while some individuals may use broad-based platforms if they're trying to really broadcast their message, so let's say a propagandist, um, another user might use an encrypted messenger or something that's more secretive to talk about attack planning. To offer just another example on top of that, if somebody is trying to either access or um, find tactical tactical planning material, so like bomb making instructions, they might look for uh, file sharing services and places where, uh, like information archives, where they can find those records, even if they've been taken off other platforms. So there's really diversity, and that diversity is both the product of and result of people who are trying to use different uh, technologies that allow them to pursue their own objectives. Earlier, you were saying that the terrorist use of media uh, and the internet is actually something that is not fundamentally new. Does the same apply to the way that terrorists might try to gain renown and reputation across the entire media ecosystem? Is this a matter just for technology or is this a broader question about how we as society engage with the threat of terrorism? 
I think that's a fantastic question because part of what we have to look at is what is the legacy of a lot of these organizations? Uh, just taking out Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, for example, uh, these groups are really built on the fact that they are the ones advocating against um, these really aggressive regimes against that are perpetrating violent attacks against Muslims, and they're sort of posturing themselves to be a great protector. So ultimately, we really need to think about when when we work to solve these problems as as countries and, and strategic planners and thinkers, uh, what does it mean when we try to eradicate them from the internet? Or what does it mean when we're trying to push them offline or silence them? Does this actually buy into a lot of what their their complaints and assertions say, uh, that we are denying them a voice? So these these are really things we need to think about. Um, when, our, when we respond to terrorists and violent extremists, are we actually legitimizing their claims uh, by acting in a way that they would expect us or anticipate us to act? Is it a strategy of provocation and they're trying to really pull us to restrict speech, um, respond to them in an aggressive manner, and really legitimize their uh, narrative of persecution? So um, am I right in understanding, Audrey, that, that, that you're, you're, you're kind of arguing that in responding to the terrorist use of the Internet, we also need to think about um, the broader context and the objectives that terrorists and violent extremists have. I wonder whether you could go into a bit more detail about what you mean by um, legitimising uh, terrorists and violent extremist groups through um, how we might respond as policymakers or technologists. What, what are your kind of concerns in that regard? In a study that I did uh, while working with the George Washington University program on extremism, I was tracking uh, sort of how ISIS sympathizers responded to Twitter's counter-extremism policies. And something I saw time and time again, although Twitter was getting faster at taking these accounts down, is sort of the attitude and public opinion of the users themselves. Um, some of the tweets I can recall off the top of my head are, are things like, um, a quote saying, there is no line if, if you're Muslim. Um, sort of what, they, what the user was saying there is that in the eyes of Twitter, there wasn't sort of a space for people to speak out and represent this, this perspective. Of course, it was an extremist user who was saying this, but the narrative that they were really um, trying to emphasize was saying, this isn't just about terrorist and violent extremists. Or, or about ISIS sympathizers, this is actually a threat to Muslims and, and the speech of Muslims. Um, and I think what they're leveraging about uh, targeting minorities is, is interesting um, because what they're trying to do is it's hitch their wagon to a narrative that already really resonates with their base um, of supporters. So I think that really they're just uh, trying to latch on to these existing concerns and and say, how does this political environment sort of validate that? As a strategic capability that terrorist groups have developed over the past few years, um, how will ISIS and Al-Qaeda uh, and other violent extremists and terrorist groups adapt as their physical power diminishes? So one of the things we, we regularly hear now, especially in light of ISIS's uh, major territorial losses, is, is there going to be an online an online caliphate or whatever iteration of um, the virtual arena. But one of the, the things that I think is really important to remember in both um, diagnosing problems concerning terrorists and violent extremists, exploitation of technology, and responding to these threats is that the online and offline worlds are deeply interconnected. 
So even though there's not a territorial um, really ad advantage that they have the same way uh, the Islamic State had years ago, uh, their online presence is still uh, certainly existent, and they span across multiple platforms, just as they span across multiple countries and nations. It's really decentralized, and so is their movement online. So I think that these are things we need to pay attention to, because even as it's decentralized, it means it's um, not subject to complete forces from the top down. We have sort of a bottom-up mobilization and people making the movement what they want it to be. So this makes them slightly less predictable in terms of things like terrorist tactics or um, whether they're completely adhering to the guidelines set forth by their organization. So as we see this sort of more disparate movement, the disparate movement online as well, uh, not just offline, means that there are implications for a command and control for the organization down the line. And that bottom-up mobilization is really an, a really important characteristic of terrorist use of the internet. What what role does, in, in your view, propaganda or terrorist content play with radicalization of individuals who might not otherwise be connected to a core terrorist group? So especially for those who aren't um, explicitly connected to, to a core terrorist group and even our definition of what that connection really means is challenged by the uh, by information communications technology. So I think that we like to assign assign attribution. So if we know that somebody was was using the internet, we say that's how they're radicalized. But at the same time, I don't think any of us come to come to our computers without conceptions or without things we're we're looking for. So realizing sort of separating the cause um, and whether it's sort of something that adds to the process is really important. So like I said earlier, the online and offline realities, um, I think it's hard to separate them. So at the same time, radicalization is really a two-way street. So you sort of approach um, researching these questions with a degree of vulnerability, and you find information that uh, validates your concerns, or like we were saying earlier, concerns about um, abusive states or uh, frustration regarding inaction. Um, and what happens is these this information and material can start to legitimize your own feelings. And you select what you believe and you deselect what you don't believe. And I think that that can really start um, allowing you to see, seek out these echo chambers uh, where you only expose yourself to, to things that you believe. And how easy is it for um, people to find content like this? I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't stumble across it by accident. Um, clearly, a lot of people can get hold of this content. What, what's your understanding of that process? Yeah, and, and I think it's this is something that's changing all the time because even earlier today, I'm trying to find um, a certain propaganda video and I can't find it anywhere, which is slightly frustrating for this research project, but it does really make us question um, to what extent do people stumble upon this versus is it something that they come across in their daily life? Uh, one challenge that we actually need to be very aware of and critical of from the outset is what is the role of mass media in spreading a lot of propaganda? I think the uh, attack in Christchurch, New Zealand is a really good example of this because um, what we were learning about how the uh, technology companies were actually not just dealing with people spreading the video itself, but uh, Western mass media spreading the videos. So although it is possible to 
identify this stuff online. In many cases, especially now that it's more regulated, you have to know what you're looking for. It's hard to stumble upon. Um, well, not impossible. Again, it, it's been made more difficult, but that has uh, both positive and negative implications, especially because there's still research that's not entirely clear that propaganda online actually causes mobilization to violence. We've been hearing a lot recently about how decentralized platforms and sites are being increasingly used by terrorists and violent extremists. What, what's your assessment of that threat? So I think that um, in some places we, we call it deplatforming, or I think the reality is that um, they're just becoming more and more uh, dispersed. So it's sort of like once you let the toothpaste out of a tube, it's, it's very difficult to get it back in. So one of the challenges we see here is that they are agile and moving to different platforms. So that means law enforcement and investigating authorities have to sort of keep pace and look to these new, new tools. But that also means that sometimes organizations lose followers along the way. Um, so though I don't believe that most people were necessarily turned off to the Islamic State because their Twitter accounts were shut down or because they had to create 96 different accounts, in order to stay on that platform. I do think that it means that while one user might go to uh, applications like Telegram, another might uh, opt for things like WhatsApp or a different tool. So although these groups are decentralized and it's sort of something that we should take stock of, um, this approach has its, its pros and cons. And I think that what we need to do is be really aware of it when we're making policy decisions about how to respond to these threats as not to completely push them into spaces that are difficult to access for law enforcement or, um, you know, that technology companies uh, can't be transparent about law enforcement requests uh, if users um, are reported to, to authorities or so on. So I think that it, it is a real challenge that um, users are ebbing and flowing to a really expansive ecosystem of communications. And it's really a matter of how do we want to contain it and sort of keep stock of it? Because at this point in time, it's really hard to gauge how, how expansive these networks are. Audrey, thanks so much for your time today. It's been good to hear your thoughts and analysis on the terrorist use of the internet. And we hope to hear from you again sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the first Tech Against Terrorism podcast and our episode on terrorist use of the internet. At Tech Against Terrorism, we're focused on supporting the tech sector tackle the terrorist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. And we also run global workshops, have a knowledge sharing platform and loads of resources on our website at Tech Against Terrorism. Thank you to our guests, Audrey Alexander and Matthew Feldman. We'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, visit our website, techagainstterrorism.org, and also we're on Twitter at Tech vs. Terrorism. Mm-hmm.